You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscan, and as usual, we have an extraordinary guest at the end of the line. Hello, Lance. Now, I understand your name is Lance Priestley. I've never met him, I've never spoken to a lands before, and I've interviewed many, many people over the years. I assume that's not the name on your birth certificate. No, it's not. <laughs> well, what is the name on your birth certificate? So you come from, now let me get this right, Aotearoa, is that correct? Aotearoa. Aotearoa. Ah, so yep. is, there, is there an English equivalent to the name? Uh, not, not really. Not really. Not really. It's right. it's a ancestral name. Right. And, um, I I thought it easier for people to pronounce lands. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask you how you came to that. It seems convoluted. Yeah. Uh, so that full name is on your birth certificate, is it? Yep. So they've got bigger birth certificates for Maoris in New Zealand than in. Than you know the packers. Well, the um, the latest form I understand doesn't accept it anymore. But this certificate I have was handwritten. Right. So um, it's actually scrawled right across. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what year were you born? Forty-five. You make me seem young. I was born in fifty-one. I'll have, <laughs> I'll have to show you some respect, lands. I think. So, well, not, not necessary. <laughs> so, so what? Uh, what part of the land, land of the long was a long white cloud? Were you born in? Uh, where uh, the area I come from is known as the Sunrise Coast. Right. So, yeah. where, where? so that's the East Coast, um, and. Uh, it's claimed fame as um, it thought it was the first place in the world to see the sun um, after they set the meridian. Actually, the second. second. <laughs> is that what Captain Cook came for, or was he going to Tahiti? Because he kind of circumnavigated uh, New Zealand, didn't he? Yeah, he, well, he didn't circumnavigate it. Ah. He, um, he went down the east coast of it. 
Right. And um, couldn't find very many places to land. So, um, about the same as the uh, same experience we had on the east coast of Australia. Was that because your ancestors were a little bit uh, toey about seeing these people on their coastline, or was it just poor anchorage, or both? Uh, both. 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 They, they look, their navigation skills weren't great. Um, their seamanship wasn't great. Uh, to Captain Cook's credit, the one thing he did was recognise that uh, you combated scurvy by... Uh, giving people fresh veggies and on the island off where I grew up there were actually still these um, uh, Chinese cabbage like plants that we call Cook's cabbage right. and, and he he had a little bit of foresight you know? he planted this stuff off in areas that he thought were remote he, I, I don't think he ever got uh, just what great navigators uh, Polynesian right. people are you able to trace your ancestry, or is that kind of lost in the midst of time? No, no, no. I've, I've gone to a lot of trouble to trace mine. Would you Would you like to share it with us, our listeners? Um, you don't have enough time. Well, we got five. But, well, but look, short, look, this is a long interview. You know. Yeah. In short, in short, um, uh, my take on our ancestry is that. Uh, um, it goes back to um, it goes back to Hawaii, which doesn't exist anymore, um, and then it goes before it predates that via uh, Melanesia, Indonesia, um, and goes up to Taiwan, back to uh, and also back to what we call Virihia, or we call it Virihia. Um, which is, uh, from what I understand, in southern India, uh, another leg of it comes from Peru. And no, none of the current ac- academics, academics agree with me on this. Right. So, so, so you've spent, what, a number of years um, chasing this? Yeah, I thought I was going to write a book when I was about 18. It was going to mm. take me about three months. And I still haven't finished. <laughs> So what was life for a young boy in uh, eastern uh, New Zealand when you were a lad just after the war? Well, I, I didn't actually grow up there. Um, so where in, did you grow up? In the early part, yeah. um, in Holland and Taiwan and Kenya, various other places, because my old man was in the army. Right. And, well, um he kept getting transferred around all over the world. Right. Um, they didn't want wartime officers in charge of peacetime troops. Right. So he was obviously was involved in World War Two, was he? Yeah. Right. Did that have any uh, lasting effect on him and your upbringing? Oh yeah. I yeah. He um, he was fairly tyrannical. Mm. Um, ran everything he did like a military operation. And um, uh, he, like, uh, he had some fairly serious war injuries. And, um, he came with those with uh, these huge buckets of pills that the army used to send him, and he, he was actually probably addicted to those for uh, at least the 
So, of your early boyhood experience as you travelled from Taiwan to uh, Peru to Kenya, uh, anything, uh, did you find anything kind of sticks in your mind during that period? Yeah, you know, when when we were in Kenya, I mean, I was real young, and uh, my old man used to walk me to the the school I went to, Mm. and we'd walk over with... um, We'd walk over all these bodies, all these people, and I, I would say to the old man, I said, yeah, Dad, we should help these people. He said, you know, there's so many of them. Um, there's nothing we can do, you know. Um, and they had, they had like, rubbish trucks going around, and people were just thrown on those wholesale, and they were dying of hunger. Right. Yeah. Well, that would be, obviously, a formative experience, so... Uh, was you, what was your mum like? Um, she was a very gentle person. She's almost the antithesis of my father. <laughs> Makes a perfect combination. Yeah, and they, they often say that. Yeah. Um, I, let, let me just say, I was really relieved that mum died 10 years after he did. Right. Mm. Why was that? Look, you don't have to answer say, things if it's yeah, difficult. No, he, he, he wasn't. He wasn't hell of a nice to her. Right. Um, and I'm just a little bit reluctant to answer. No, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Look, because he's not here to answer for himself. No. Otherwise, I'd throw the book at him. You know? Yeah, yeah. Did you actually uh, reconcile with him before he died, or no, 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 no? Uh, when I was thirteen. I ripped uh, ripped the baton off the fence when I came home, and uh, he was standing on Mum's hair, punching the shit out of her. Mm. Uh, I ripped the baton off the fence, smashed him over the head with it, and I haven't had much time for him since then. Right. And uh, so, uh, do you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah. Um, well, I've got I've got one left living. So, what sisters, brothers that you have, or? Ah, just a couple of brothers. Right, and they, they were dragged around the world like you were, were they? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, no. No? Uh, they were, um, while we were travelling around, they, they were brought up by other people. Right. Well, yeah. Was that a traditional arrangement or um, yeah, like yeah, in the we, Torres Strait? We've, yeah. we've got a thing called whangai mm-hmm. where uh, yeah, you uh, give your kids to other... Um, other close family, so as to uh, maintain the bond between those elements of the family, mm. um, and quite often it extends to rural family, tribe, whatever. Yes, it's, it's interesting. We've got the same concept, in the, as you know, in the Torres Strait, and there's yep. legislation recently been passed to recognise that because a lot of children who were brought up in different families couldn't actually get uh, passports. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that's been resolved. Yeah, traditional way. Um, mm. Look, uh, a lot of the uh, traditional societies around the world did that. And, um, I, I think even um, a lot of European societies did that uh, a few centuries ago, at least. 
Yeah, well, look, the mafia did that till recently. You'd kind of yeah. give one of the kids to the head, you know, the head family to the other, just to keep the peace, basically. Yeah. Exactly, and uh, Sicily was one of Sicily and uh, Calabria yes. um, and uh, a few other places in that area were places that I was thinking of yeah, uh, yeah. when I said that. Yeah, because yeah, I come from Sicily, so I understand okay. that. Now... So when did you get back? To, when did you get to the east coast? Uh, like we were, we were backwards and forwards, but we moved back uh, to live there in the mid fifties. Mm-hmm. What's that in the background? Sounds like a beast of some type. Uh, it's, my mate who's just been out clearing um, lantana and all that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So fair enough. Are they? Covered in the uh, stigmata of Lantana clearing? Oh, uh, Scratches everywhere? I, I went out and had a go earlier on. And, no, I was fine with Lantana. Uh, the, um, they've got these weird ants up here. Um, the little green things, I think they called them jumping ants. Oh, yes. So I walked into a nest of those. And the moral of the story is wear safety gear, huh? <laughs> so, so where are you? Where are you living? You're living in Sydney or outside Sydney? Or? Oh, no. Uh, look, I, I live on the streets in Sydney. You live on the streets? Um, mm-hmm. But um, I'm just up in northern New South Wales at the moment. Right. Okay. All right, let's get, let's get back to... So, it's strange, isn't it? You've got this connection to New Zealand and a strong connection. So, when did you um, decide to uh, escape? I, you know, as, like as an adult, I, you know, I realised there was a big world out there and I was pretty interested in seeing a lot of it. So, um, you know, I did a fair bit of that, but uh, as far as coming here goes, um, when did I came here, what, 47 years ago? So, so what parts of the world did you see before you came to Australia? And were you a mer- uh, were you a merchant seaman? Nah, not no. at all a merchant seaman. Right. <laughs> uh, more, more merchant larrikins. Right. Like okay. <laughs> um, well, even but, uh, even merchant larrikins have to pay their way when they're travelling. Yeah. Well, well, you know, and yeah, you get to be really inventive about that um, when you're. Uh, uh, when you're not able to uh, rely on anyone else but yourself, you know, mm-hmm. um, you, you tend to uh, you tend to find ways to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so how long did you wander the world before you ended up in Australia? Oh, well, I ended up in Australia long before I stopped uh, wandering the world. Right. <laughs> I sort of lost the wanderlust in about nine. I'd say. In the 90s, yeah. It's a good time when the bones start creaking. It's a good time to yeah. stop the wanderlust. So, well, they hadn't they hadn't started creaking just then. <laughs> <laughs> just a bit harder. They this. certainly have now. Yeah. Yeah. So where did you... Um, tell us some more interesting places you found yourself in and how you survived. Mm. Ah, well, there was... Um, worked for a little while on... Um, on a boat taking workers out to the oil rigs on the Gulf of Marakaibo, 
um, and that that worked really well until um, until the company that I was working for didn't pay their bribes one day, and we all in, ended up in this jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, the the concept of the jail jail at the time in Venezuela was quite different to our concept of jail. Um, it was a clearing in the middle of uh, in the middle of the forest with no fences um, and a pipe in the middle. The water that came out of the pipe was free. Everything else you paid for. That's right. Hasn't yeah. changed much, you know. Well, they've got walls yeah. up now. You still got to pay for everything. No, oh, well, that's it. You know, we uh, they've just ex- extended that concept to include the whole nation. Yeah. So, so, so how did yeah. you how did you get out of that situation? Did they start paying their bribes again? Oh yeah, they they paid their bribes. Uh, we got out after about a month, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, good. And about any other uh, any other thing you'd like to share with us? Maybe uh, maybe, maybe when uh, you basically had nothing and you were surviving overseas. Um. Yeah. I. Yeah. There wasn't really a time when I got down to having nothing. Mm-hmm. I, I like to be fairly well padded out back then, uh, which is a little bit different to now. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think there was such a time when I was travelling. Right. I, I mean, you know, my one of my best friends was a German guy, and uh, so Frank and I used to play this game where every year we'd go to his father's place, we'd get blind drunk and a few other things, and we'd roll out this huge map, and we'd throw a coin on the ta- on, on the map where the coin landed. That's where we were going. And then the game was with a hundred um, a hundred dollars US to get back to his father's place. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, we uh, we had some fairly uh, interesting experiences, both of us, um, in parlaying that because you couldn't. Yeah, even by the cheapest means, you couldn't buy a ticket for that price. So we had to pretty much make things up as we went along. Right. That was fun. That was, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you could do that then. You can't do it yeah, now. Yeah. yeah, you could do that. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that we got away with back then you know, would be inconceivable now. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean... When I when I first uh, left home, my mum thought I was just staying with an auntie or whatever. And, um, I, so I went down to Wellington, and then I um, I decided to go overseas. And uh, you know, mum mum heard from me two years later when I got arrested in Canada. <laughs> um, you know that that sort of shit. Can't happen now, you know. No, uh, no. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, you find ways to make it happen. Yeah. And, uh, I guess I've found ways to make it happen. Right. Um, yeah, you know, all, all that, all that stuff is, uh, you know, is what, uh, uh, yeah, those are the resources that I tap today. Right. Um, to make shit happen today, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, just, uh, you know, here's what we're aiming to do. Um, let's 
get there um, and, and let's let's find a way to get there. Right. So, so you've kind of kept the same plan. You've kind of revised the destinations, but you've kept the same plan of action, have you, over the years? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've... I think I recognised really early what uh, what was prudent to ignore and prudent to take notice of, yeah. And um, I found that what was prudent to ignore whatever it was what everyone else was doing. Um, if uh, if the problem or uh, if the objective still hadn't been reached, yeah. Right. Um, if, if you've got a whole lot of people out there making a whole lot of noise and they haven't reached the objective, well, don't go the same way as, they, as they're going. They're going that way, maybe they'll get there. But mm. if there's another way, I'm going to go that way. Right, so you, you didn't go on the uh, mortgage and rent trail, is that what you're trying to say? And the wage, uh, slavery, and wage slavery trail, or did you give it a bit of a tryout? Uh, look, I, I walked down those paths... Um, I walked down those paths for a long time. And, um, mm-hmm. How long was a long time? Uh, look, I um, I really stopped working in about 2007 while doing that sort of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. So, 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 why Australia? Why not back to New Zealand? Uh, it was close enough if anything happened to my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I got here, I thought, oh, OK, I'll go and see all of this country. And, um, I'd been in Europe before. I was used to driving across three countries to go to a pub sort of thing, you know. Yeah. And um, anyhow, I borrowed a friend of mine's four-wheel drive. And, um, I went, I thought, I'll um, head out through Broken Hill. I saw where Broken Hill was on the map. And you know, I really had no concept of just how big this country was. Right. Uh, yeah. So, ten hours later, you still haven't reached the border. You know, shame we, shame we were in Europe. You drive for ten hours and not reach the border. You know? yeah. yeah. And uh, you just, just the scale of the place. And then I, then I realised there was so much to see here. Yeah. There was so much to see, so much to do, and, um, and the people were extremely lazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, what made you think they were lazy? Because it was hot. Oh, I don't mean lazy physically either. I mean lazy mentally. Yeah, and and I think Australia was a little bit behind a lot of other places um, at the time. Right. Um, in in terms of what was happening on a global scale, and yeah, and I looked and I said, oh, should, you know, all you do is listen. People went, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and and all I'd done was take something I'd seen happening overseas, and you know what? Um, that sort of mindset has actually killed Australia as it used to be. Right. Mm. Mm. So it just p- took me, yep. took me a few decades to realise that. Mm. So, is there any particular parts of this uh, country that you um, find more interesting than others? Think places um, you gravitate towards. Yeah. That's changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Like I always went somewhere else, but I always came back to Sydney. Now you know I've got this almost obligation to finish stuff off in Sydney, 
but as soon as I can get out of Sydney, I do. Yeah, yeah look, I don't blame. Yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah. And I, uh, well, I, yeah. If if I can't wait to get out of Sydney now, I could never wait to get out of Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I've. I lived in Brisbane for about 25 years and about 40 years in Melbourne. I moved into the country about a year ago and uh, I, I haven't looked back. Look, I understand. It's As you get older, you, you don't need the noise and the aggravation and people brushing you as you're walking past them. You know, you just don't need it. Yeah. But, yeah, there's, there's, a whole lot of, yeah, there's a whole lot of really good reasons to leave the cities. And, you know, we, we have to take some responsibility having lived in them mm. and uh, and participated in making them what they are, we have to take some responsibility and say, well, you know, that's a really beautiful place. But we um, but we thought we were going to spend the rest of our lives and, well, good on us, we fed up, didn't we? Yeah, well, I think that's... Look, when I moved to Melbourne, I think it was seven, into 76, there were 2 million people now, and now there's yeah. 5 million, you know? It seems the same in, yeah. story in Sydney. Same in Sydney. Uh, you, and, look, you, um, look, you look at the Melbourne skyline, you think you're in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, um, the way we're building these days, uh, 20 years ago we were, we were laughing at China um, for, for building like that. Now we're doing you know, I, I've, I've came across a little useless fact you may be interested in, most likely you know it, that uh, building regulations in Melbourne allow apartments to be built smaller than they're allowed to be built in Hong Kong. <laughs> okay. Um, and the reason for that is, do you know the reason for that? Oh, you make an extra buck, you're going to add in another another unit. Instead of having 10, you have 11 in the same space, I assume. Okay. Um, the, the driver for that, developers was tiny houses mm. um, and I used to be a huge fan of tiny houses back in the early 2010s um, when it was the first tiny house concept in that name style etc was rolled out by Occupy Madison in the States and then a few other places uh, took up the idea when they saw what Occupy Madison were doing and refined it. And then council started actually doing DA approvals on um, on tiny houses to the cheers of many of the homelessness advocates and um, large sections of the community. But what does a tiny house do? It actually redefines what the minimum floor space is person and you've got an example down there uh, down there now um, which leads the charge as far as developers went um, or do they call it common ground yes yes the um, the Grollo development yep um, and we've got one up here so both of those shoehorn people into dying boxes mm. uh, um, that are way below what the previous uh, minimal, minimum allowable floor space per person was. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that's had a ripple effect across the construction industry um, and across the uh, across state planning. Yeah. yeah. 
Because what I find, look, I don't know if you've got the same experience in regional New South Wales, but I'm finding in regional Victoria is when you go to a regional town, it's kind of moving forward in terms of building. But when you look at the houses that have been built, they've been built on tiny allotments with no garden, basically. It's yeah, just, just cookie extra- cutters. Yeah. Yeah. And people have been, you know, if you go to Western Sydney, Western Sydney is a sea of cookie cutters. Mm. And um, people have been educated in inverted commas uh, that it's such a good idea to have a big house and um, little or no grounds because you've got less maintenance. Mm. But, um, yeah, that's the perception that people are buying into in buying these things. But when you look at the uh, infrastructure development that goes along with it, um, yeah, let's let's talk about Sydney. That's where I know you've got thousands upon thousands of cookie cutter houses that are being built without any basic improvement to the water infrastructure. Mm. You know, and um, you know, Sid- Sydney is at a, a way at a tipping point now, as far as uh, as critical water supply goes. You know, they don't have the capability in in an extreme weather event, and I, I mean a prolonged drought, they don't have the capability to supply all these houses with water. Well, what, um, what's made you so interested in housing? Well, I spent, um, I spent nearly 40 years project managing. Project manager, uh, so, right. Yeah. Project so, manager for what? For what? Uh, so in construction mainly, mm-hmm. but I dallied around a little bit in logistics and IT as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, but um, yeah, that that gave me the construction industry side. Um, and I'd go as far as to say, don't buy anything built in New South Wales, New South Wales in the last thirty years. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the quality is absolute crap, yeah. and I understand it's no different down in Melbourne. Yeah, because um, if if you're a voyeur, it's perfect. You can actually listen to your neighbours' sexual encounters. You yeah, know? that's how bad things are. Yeah. And um, and you know, it, unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. Um, you know, there's a thing in the building trade. A lot of the a lot of the concrete walls, um, they so they. In order to get the concrete to flow down them, they actually have to wet the concrete up and have it. So they run a concrete test. Mm-hmm. They get their test right, um, and as soon as the test's right, they throw a hose into the truck. Which means, if you did the test after they throw the hose in, that concrete doesn't meet the uh, NPA rating mm-hmm. um, that they've taken the samples for. And this is an endemic problem. Uh, yeah, across the construction industry in Australia, and they can't do it any other way because the walls are designed too thin, or they've got too much steel in them, whatever. Right. Um, you've got all the toxins in the buildings. You've got all the glues and that. Um, that, that hold your carpet down. That um, hold your um, your uh, architraving and all that on. Um, and uh, yeah, you're you're living in a place that uh, that absolutely uh, 
Yeah, it's not good for your health either, obviously. It's not well. It's not good for your health. It's not good for your wallet either. Yeah, or um, your psyche. Yeah. yeah, none none of those things. You know? mm. I've found now I have to get out of Sydney. The Sydney that I helped build, I might add. Um, yeah, I have to get out of out of there um, just to recharge. You know? Right. Yeah. So, can I just ask you a question? Is Concrete cancer. What what exactly is that? Because people keep speaking about it. It's a it's a big issue these days. So, concrete cancer is typically where the concrete hasn't been vibrated properly, um, and uh, so the vibration when when you're pouring concrete um, causes it to condense. Um, and gets rid of the air bubbles and all that. Typically, concrete cancer sets in, uh, sets in around that. But um, <coughs> you know, the, there are multiple other problems yet to evidence themselves with concrete. We've had changes in formulations of concrete uh, every about 15 years. So, you know, there's, there's no real testing there's no well there's no real datum point to go back and say well that's the oldest concrete because you're not care, uh, comparing apples with apples right mm. so so when you retired in 2007 mm. um, what was on your mind what were you going to do with your life I would, uh, well what I'd been what I'd been doing more and more you know um, look I um my, bro- my brother who passed away a few years ago and I, when we were apprentices, we came across these guys who were homeless in a park in New Zealand that we used to walk through. And, you know, we took them soup and then we realised they needed blankets, so we took them blankets. Eventually we got them housed and all that, and then we realised there were all these other people. You know, so... Mm. Um, that's always been, you know, to me, either we all go up together or we all go down together. Mm-hmm. You know? And if someone's fearing a little bit worse than us, then it's a community responsibility to help them. Well, that goes against current uh, ideology. It's all films, all films, each for each yeah. other. You know, it's not a collective yeah. responsibility, is it? Yeah, no, I mean, it's like it's like your experience in Kenya. You, you walk over somebody who's homeless. Seems to be the same uh, attitude. You know, I'll, I'll hasten to uh, just revisit that a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, you know, unequivocally, my my old man was there as a representative of the Raj. You know, yep. um, he you know, he was there to uh, to resist uh, uh, the efforts of guys like Jomo Kenyatta and all that. You know, uh-huh. um, and uh, thankfully, they lost. Yes, yes. So, so ha- has your life changed since 2017, or is it just the same? Uh, Apart from the wage well, packet every week. Well, well, yeah, the wage, the wage packet, uh, the wage packet uh, had been diminishing anyway. Uh, and that was a progressive thing since the. Uh, uh, since I took on less work after 
about 95. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, my, I, look, I, my, my brother and I always had an interest in homelessness. And we worked with the Salvos. We worked with the various organisations. We read all their reports. And um, so we were sitting there having dinner one night, and I said, you know what? I'm going to go and test drive what we think we know. I'm going to go and live on the streets for a while. And two weeks later, I was able to tell him, well, you know, throw all that shit we thought we knew in the rubbish bin. We know it's all. Well, what did you learn? Well, I, I learned that all those reports were written with a, uh, with a particular poverty industry um, objective in mind, and usually that objective was to gain some form or another of funding. Um, those reports have been written and still are today, largely without any meaningful consultation with, with the target constituency. And uh, often he ended up providing services that the ta- uh, target, consti- target constituency neither asked for nor wanted. Mm-hmm. And um, that being the case, when you re-evaluate the services that are being delivered in the name of that particular marginalised community, um you're actually not doing very much for them at all. In fact, you're taking away from them in the sense that you're using them as tokens to collect money with. I've never found anything more offensive than that. Well, it is. Your poverty industry, you're quite right. I mean, I was um, involved in a number of public housing protests, and we continue to be involved in public housing protests in Melbourne. And one of the women who joined us on a 10-day vigil on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House in late 2018 had been homeless for two years. And she said to me, she said, look, I've got four caseworkers. They're all making a buck out of me, but they still haven't yep. been able to find me accommodation. Yep. They, come, they come around and say hello and, you know, and buy me a cup of coffee, but I'm still waiting for accommodation. Yeah, you know, when you... When you go and see these caseworkers from these NGOs, you walk in, and I reckon within 15 minutes, the caseworker knows the shortest way of exiting you from the situation you're in, right? But hang on. If you do that, the organisation doesn't make as much money as if they send you to do this program and that program and that program. 18 months later, they spit you out. So have you seen the... Yeah, because we've been involved in this for a number of years, like obviously not as long as you've been involved with public housing. It's the worst state in Australia for public housing, Victoria, because it's been privatised everywhere. And um, all those groups you would expect to support you are now fighting for their little piece of the uh, social housing or community housing and the affordable housing sector, which are all privately owned. Do you find the same up there in New South Wales? And, uh, you know, we're, I've, I've stepped back from our street kitchen mm-hmm. um, in order to initiate a plan which we're launching as from July the 4th, um, which aims to end homelessness across Australia by 2028. 
guess I'm reminded of what Bob Hawke said about ending child poverty and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but I, I think I've spent long enough looking at it. I know where the levers are, um, and I think I know when to force those that are standing with their hands behind their back to pull the levers. So, where are the levers, Lance? Where are the levers? I'm not asking you to name well, names, I'm just saying generally, yeah. what are the levers yeah. that people should be pulling on? Uh, look, the, le- the levers that people should be pulling on, um, politically, we've got to get rid of, uh, um, what do you call it, um, negative gearing mm-hmm. and any tax incentives to investors in residential property. You don't end homeless. You think the the nature or the reasons people are becoming homeless is is changing in the last decade or so? Absolutely. You know, back in back in the eighties and nineties, most homeless people were drug or alcohol affected. You come to our street kitchens now, you see very little evidence of alcohol. You see very little evidence of drugs. So, so what type of people are accessing the street kitchen? Look, we're, um, we're, we're getting a demographic. I'll start with the most recent identified uh, issue. We've got people coming on the streets, and they're not staying on the streets for long. They're staying on the street six, eight weeks, and they get themselves off again. Right. So they're people that have lost the accommodation, haven't been able to um, haven't been able to find new accommodation, they end up on the streets and you know, in Sydney I know, you know, it's not unusual for even working people to be waiting two years to find another place. Mm-hmm. So, so what about people that are on benefits and all that? Mm. Are you seeing num- an increasing number of women and children? We're seeing an increasing number of women. We're not seeing the children. Right. And people know, look, people know, people live in fear of a department here called DOCS or yep. FACS. We've, uh, yeah, we've got it in Victoria yeah, and the rest of Australia. They're, they're the rest of Australia as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people live in abject fear of that of those that department and their uh, quasi-autonomous organisation. So they know better than to show the facts that they're living run mm. with their kids. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, that's a generally held perception right across Australia now. Um, some friends set up the Frio Street Kitchen in 
Fremantle recently, and uh, you know they identified the same thing over there. That's that's not to not to say we don't have people uh, come down and say, "Oh, look, I've got three kids in the car," sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, our first advice to them is, "Don't bring the kids down. Yep. Uh, come down and get food for them. Mm. But don't bring the kids down." Mm. So yeah, yeah. If if we look at what the main driver for homelessness is now, I'd say unequivocally the cost of housing. Um, and yeah, and Freedom landlords have to, and real estate agents have to, um, increase rents. And uh, the absolute handbrake on income. Mm. In fact, you know, if, you, if you look at real incomes now, uh, take a minute help. We, we got a lot of gig economy workers uh, coming down for food. So you're getting delivery people coming down for food, deliver food coming down for food. Yeah, we've you know, we've, we've had people from I won't name them, but no, no. All, almost every delivery service, mm. almost every food delivery service coming down, uh, and and uh, yeah, the same people uh, when they've got a delivery, but um, uh, but they can't deliver for one reason or another. Um, that ends up down at our street kitchen as well. Yeah, so, but yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah, there are uh, not only them. We've you know, we've got people who work for uh, work in logistics for um, fairly major retailers in Australia, but they're on zero-hour contracts. So they might be getting forty-two bucks an hour, but what if they're only getting one four-hour shift a week? Yes. Yeah. Mm. So what, what's the difference between the mob you've created and you're working with and the poverty industry? What's the philosophical difference? Oh, look, the fundamental difference is we operate as a community and we operate totally transparently. We don't actively go out and raise funds. We raise resources. We give the community the opportunity to provide the resources and know that those resources that have been provided are going 100% where they intended them to go. Right. And do you have any trouble with local councils? No, of course we did. And um, we, uh, we, we've been through phases where we had trouble with local cops and councils and what have you. When we first set up a 24-hour street kitchen um, in a year, I think I got arrested about 98 times. Ninety-eight times. <laughs> you were arrested for setting up a street kitchen. Yeah, well, they found all these different. Um, I, I mean, it was quite hilarious. The, you didn't the first yeah. first seventeen times were in the space of about two and a half weeks. They were arresting me three times a day, and they take <laughs> me and they give me these bail conditions and all that. And I looked and I thought, ah, oh, yeah. Do I challenge that? Not yet. And I turned up the seventeenth time, and um, Judge Moore said, "He said, look, um, you've got seven, uh, sixteen previous bail things. Um, give me a good reason why I should give you him me. Give me a good reason why I should give you bail again." And I said, "Well, if you look, Your Honour, all those bail." 
conditions that they've imposed, they all relate to regulations. And there's actually, um, there's no provision that I can see for bail to be, uh, uh, it's, it's, there's no question of bail where it's a breach of regulation. He went back and looked and <laughs> struck all my bail conditions out. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I knew that. I was, I, I just, I just thought, oh, yeah, oh, there, there are other things, other fish to fry and um, they're going to look really stupid later. Yeah, and they did. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, they didn't get one single conviction out of those 90, uh, 98. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't doing it for fun. No. Uh, I was doing it, for, doing it to um, establish, A, to establish a principle and, B, to educate the cops. Well, you're doing the cops a service. They don't understand that. I mean, when we occupied the um, Parliament House forecourt for 10 days, uh, the, local, the cops wanted to remove us, but I, had a, I was the convener, I had a, a nice chat with the bloke in charge, and uh, I explained to him, you know, we're doing this for you in the end because it means you're spending 80% of your time, you know, hassling homeless people over nothing. And, yep. and uh, we'd be surrounded on a number of occasions and they'd have to, they had to call the head officer every time to remove us and uh, he'd say, are they violent? We'd, they'd say no and they said, well, leave them alone. They're doing nothing. Leave them alone. Because yep. you are helping the cops because you're controlling the situation for them, you know. You're yep. feeding I mean, people. Look, when we had Tent City and Martin Place, we had cops turning up there at 2 o'clock in the morning with domestic violence victims, mm. right, that they couldn't put anywhere else, right? And, you know, and they weren't happy about it. Um, and, you know, most of the cops who were around at the time understood that with us there, you know, their words, not mine, what we did in providing people with food and uh, somewhere warm, somewhere to be, reduced a basket of crimes across the city by a third. Mm. Um, and, you know, no, when you think about it, no one wants to go and steal the seed. But if they've got no other option, then they will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you need to survive. That's right. Yeah. So, so, so how... You, you said you're going to move from providing a service with the street kitchen. Well, the, the street kitchen's still going to be doing yeah. what it does. Yeah, but what? It, yeah. how are you going to extend the campaign you're doing? What, you got any plans? Yeah, we have. Um, one of them's around social housing, and uh, we we actually trying to get hold of the block of social housing plans uh, and uh, do what we think should happen with social housing. But you know, that's that's just one element. That's one of the seven elements. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, our construct around social housing is that uh, the government. Those that say the government should run it, run it, go and live in one. For those that say that uh, external managers should live, live in it, uh, should run it again, go and live in one. Yeah. Go and live under their management. And um, we we think a better model with social housing might be to set up self-managed communities. So if the community doesn't have the skills to manage itself put in place a five-year, six-year program, whatever, uh, and bring bring to that community, bring into that community the skills that are necessary to manage the community.
there not only useful to the community but marketable externally. Mm-hmm. About, that gives it an income yeah. base. Right. That gives it an income base where eventually they should be in a position to buy their to buy their own to buy their complex. Mm-hmm. Maybe use the model of an MO, uh, use strata, whatever strata over whatever. But um, yeah, the community should have control of its own living space right. and, and its own development space. Uh, are you applying any direct political pressure as far as the state government and the opposition and other parties are concerned? Not yet. Not yet. Um, mm. Not yet. We will. Um, and the, uh, to me, um, I'm, I'm over the concept of asking government to do things because um, you, you've got to present them with a unique selling point. Mm. Um, and otherwise, they just, yeah, they've got the people, they've got the resources, they just run you around in circles, promise the earth, um, and deliver Pluto. No, I'm not talking about that type of thing where you make submissions. I'm talking about the type of campaigns where you apply direct political pressure by mobilising people, you know, to stand on their doorstep for day after oh, day, that type of thing, you yeah. know? That'll, that'll, that'll happen. Uh, we're, we're about a couple of years, we're a couple of years out doing that right uh, you know this this has to be you know, in order you know, and and more particularly the areas where that would work are and where that's essential around uh, bringing the necessary legislative changes mm. uh, um, as far as social housing goes we think that by popping up an alternative that actually works will force them to the table right and, no. uh, and we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, as far as your own personal life is concerned, Lance, have you got any plans apart from staying alive? Well, staying alive is a fairly... Uh, yeah, a lot of people think that's, that's fairly important at the moment. I don't. Um, yeah. uh, no, my, my plans are fairly focused on that, and we're, we're, still, uh, we're still worried about water out on the barker. any mechanism by which uh, interested people can um, contact you or you just rely on people approaching you uh, personally uh, in the streets? We've got a whole lot of Facebook pages so on, on Facebook we're Blanket Patrol we're the Sydney 24-7 Street Kitchen Safe Space um, what else are we wearing? Clothes with Dignity right. with Dignity Water So there's many points people can contact you. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, uh, and the whole thing is those are entry points uh, to our communities, you know. Right. Um, and each of those is developed as a totally autonomous community. Okay. Yeah. Great. 
All right, Lance, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you and hopefully uh, your experiences will get other people um, thinking about their lives and maybe they'll be able to uh, assist uh, what you're doing because uh, you've hit the nail on the head. Homelessness is not just a matter of addiction. It's become an economic issue. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and when, when we look at not only homelessness but every, everything that's perceived as pro- problematic, look, the real issue is nobody's looking for a zero-problem solution. Yeah. And it's not in anyone's interest to look for a zero-problem solution because away go their revenue streams. Solve the problem, and all that money suddenly vanishes. Great. All right. That's our way. Yep, great. Now, Lance, just before we um, sign off, can you just once again tell us your name on your birth certificate? Because I've never met anybody with such a long name. I wish, wish you, your friends, your fellow activists and any members of your family that are still out there all the very best for the future. And with people like you, I think we can make this place a better place and the world a better place. Thank you very much, Lance. Thanks, Joe. Bye. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace, a treaty means equality, and a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.